everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Are You Kidding Me? I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am Ian Rowe, a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. So our podcast is devoted to talking about systems that are supposed to serve kids, but sometimes don't end up doing so. But today we have a nice surprise, which is we have a system that seems to be we have good kids news. Better. Yes, we have good news. So exciting. Yeah. So actually, you know, just information just came out from Pew Charitable Trust. They do great research. And they have reported that in 2018, the latest year for which data is available, more than 63,000 children were adopted from foster care, up nearly a quarter from 2014. That is an all-time high. And as someone who serves all sorts of kids through the schools that I run and knowing how important it is that kids have access to a stable family, you know, stable family and stable home, this is really wonderful news. Yeah. Why is this happening? So, I mean, we have to we do have to put this in the broader context. There are about 440,000 kids in this country who are in foster care in 2018. A lot of that seems to be driven, at least in part, by the opioid epidemic and other drug crises around the country. We shouldn't say it's just opioids because it's all sorts of substance abuse that has been a contributing factor in the neglect of a lot of children. Is that a sign of you know something we've talked about? Some of these systems have become so dedicated to keeping families together, but this actually indicates that the systems are appropriately placing children in foster care if, in this case, opioid crisis is really the reason that foster care is increasing. Right. So I think, you know, certainly what's happening is that the federal government has definitely lit a fire under states saying that, you know, we really can't be letting these kids languish in foster care for too long. We certainly have a rule on the books that suggests that if kids who are, are in foster care for 15 of the last 22 months, a state is supposed to move to sever parental rights. Many states ignore that regularly. But I think the federal government, uh, Lynn Johnson, who is over at HHS leading the Administration for Children and Families, I think has become a little bit fed up with the amount of time that kids are spending in foster care. And I should say, you know, that some of this is merely bureaucratic or, you know, it's sort of we're, we're getting the rubber stamp of approval from the court for these adoptions. But many of these kids have been living in stable foster families for a long period of time. But I think what Secretary Johnson and other people in this area have finally recognized is really the importance of making it official. That it's not just enough to say, you know, this child has been living there for two years. I mean, the parents want to make long-term promises to these kids. I've talked to these foster parents, and they really want to talk about, like, Fantastic. vacation we're going to take in five years or whatever. But they're afraid to talk in those terms until everything is final. How much does it impact things that it seems that most of these kids are much younger because the biological parents are having these drug issues? So it seems like they just recently had their child. So does it make a difference? Does that contribute to the why the percent uptake is so high in terms of adoptions? I think so. I mean, certainly, you know, the sad truth is that, you know, many of these children have been born substance exposed, but certainly it's become very clear very early on in their lives that their parents are incapable of taking care of them. And unfortunately, it's also the case that many families are simply don't feel equipped or don't want to take in kids who are older. And so when you have a larger pool of younger kids, you know, then then you will increase the number of adoptions. Now, I will say, you know, again, to Secretary Johnson's credit, you know, they just went on a 
their campaign for this year for adoption is actually specifically focused on teenage adoption. I went to a, a really inspiring event a couple of months ago that was sponsored by HHS, but also had you know buy-in from all sorts of other state and federal agencies and nonprofits that really focused on families that had taken in teenage kids and adopted them. There was actually a really interesting panel of people who were teachers or in other kinds of helping professions where they had encountered these kids and had subsequently mentored them and then adopted them. If we have a listener right now that would be interested in in adopting a child from foster care, how would they go about doing that? If someone wanted to open their home to either a very young child who has some substance abuse issues or a teenager, how do you get yourself comfortable with the idea that we could actually create a loving home for that child? So, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, there are certainly ways you could go through the state to get that training and to get more information. I mean, one of the things that I've spent a lot of time on is going to many faith-based communities that have really tried to do a better job of the training and recruitment of these families and really kind of give them a sense of what they're in for and also provide the kind of support network that they're going to need for what will probably be a very challenging experience for them. For anyone who's considering doing this, you are doing something amazing. You're bringing a child into your home and fundamentally transforming their life and frankly, helping the biological parents too, who hopefully will use this opportunity to transform their lives. I think so. And, and there's also a lot of evidence too. I think, you know, some families feel like, well, what can I do for a child who's already, you know, 13 or 14 or 15 and who's already been through all these difficult experiences? And I think the people I have talked to have done this, you know, have talked about just the importance no matter how old that child is. I mean, you have people who are adopting 17-year-olds creating kind of a permanent family bond for that child, someone to come home to, someone to consult as they enter adulthood. And those transition years are so important. So any way that you can create that kind of permanency and that feeling that they have a family, a forever family, as it's called, is is really important. What's so inspiring about that is just this idea of unconditional love and it's never too late. And again, if you're considering doing this, it it would be wonderful. You'd be transforming the lives of so many children. Absolutely. So now we're going to talk a little bit about a headline that from the other day about some news in California. They're taking kind of a different approach to kids who have had ACEs, which stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. So tell us a little bit about that, Ian. Yeah. So in California, they are doing something innovative. So Nadine Burke Harris, who's actually the the state's first Surgeon General, if you get a chance, watch her TED Talk. It's pretty amazing. But For years, she's been championing this idea of the fact that there are all these very young children who have had adverse childhood experiences. And those those are things that, especially for kids zero to three, it could range from viewing abuse or seeing violence or neglect. And the data, particularly emerging brain data, has shown that if a child has three or four ACEs, it could lead to cumulative damage socially, brain development that has lifelong consequences. And Nadine Burke Harris has been a champion for many years to say, let's get ahead of this problem because many times you see kids showing up in school, in kindergarten, with whole hosts of issues that had there been appropriate screening for these kinds of ACEs, interventions could have been done. And This actually is an example of, I think, you know, we often talk about systems that don't work for kids. This is someone who I think is actually having some forethought to say, how do we work with pediatricians and doctors who are with kids already to incentivize them to ask questions 
So now there's an actual screen. So doctors have a financial incentive to actually ask parents and, you know, depending on the age of the child, they can ask him or herself questions about, have you witnessed violence? Have you felt neglect? I and mean, some of the questions are, you know, have you felt unloved? And that'd be sort of yeah. weird to get to get that question. Yeah, I, mean, I, I kind of want to play devil's advocate here just for a minute. I mean, look, a lot of these experiences are quite serious. You know, the death of a parent, the incarceration of a parent, things like that. But obviously, these are things that children have dealt with, you know, since the beginning of time, you know, the death of a parent. And, and so what are we discovering here that's new? And is there a danger here that we're just going to sort of use this data to say, oh, these kids really, we really shouldn't expect, you know, too much of them because they've been through such hard things and, and it's really just, it's too much. Well, I, I agree. If, if that's what this becomes, then that is a that's a problem. That's a failure. My, my hope is that this actually does result either in individual or aggregate data that helps child welfare systems or local communities identify whether there are patterns of behavior, if there are certain communities where there are higher percentages of kids with higher numbers of ACEs, then hopefully that leads to some kind of either cultural intervention or policy intervention that helps improve environments for kids. I mean, if you're already working with a trusted pediatrician, the hope is that that parent by the way, will be honest in answering questions related right. to the ACEs, and that, that already is a, a hurdle. But presuming that the quality of information is good, then A, there might be an opportunity to provide some kind of support, counseling, or other intervention to the child, and frankly, it might also be relevant for the parent. It reminded me of something I just finished writing an article about, something called TBRI, which is, stands for trust-based relational intervention. And as this program developed at Texas Christian University, specifically for parents of adopted kids, and it started actually just as kids who had been adopted internationally, who had experienced these horrific orphanages in Romania and Russia and places like that, where they really had no kind of interaction or love for the first number of years of their lives. And they came over here and the parents just had no idea what to do with them. Right. Their, their behavior was, you know, borderline, you know, sociopathic. And so the trust-based relational intervention, you know, it was kind of a, a series of actions and conversations and kind of ways that you can help this child to experience the development that they didn't experience when they were younger. And for me, the most interesting part about this was that after kids went through this program with their parents for one summer, they actually experienced lower baseline cortisol levels, which is the stress hormone. And that we know has great effects on chronic health problems and other things like that. So there are clearly interventions that can be used if we find out about these ACEs and how widespread those are and to what extent. I think we're still at the early stages. Yeah, I, I don't think there's a silver bullet. I mean, there's a phrase called toxic stress, which is often associated with ACEs. And the hope is that you can at least identify them. It doesn't always mean that you will be able to find a specific intervention for the child. But, you know, my, my hope with all of this is that how do we avoid these situations in the first place, right? So if there are kids that are suffering and you're doing all this screening, you're identifying that there are environments where kids are suffering, they're suffering all of these ACEs, how does that inform the next generation so that we're not creating the same kind of, whether it be unstable family structures or other environments that we can educate young people who might be, you know, their passage into young adulthood, they may be having children. Do they have an understanding of the level of risk if they do have children, what the likelihood is that their child 
will suffer ACEs. And I think that's another hopeful opportunity once you start to aggregate the data. Yeah. I mean, really the, you know, and we keep coming back to this, the way to protect children from ACEs is by having a solid family structure. Yes. That is the best way that we know to do that. That is the best intervention. And sure. and I think that a lot of times, you know, with this policy work, we're talking either on the very macro level, like, you know, these ACEs are, you know, being created by structural racism or they're being created by poverty or they're being created by the whole violence around the neighborhood or things like that. Then we're sort of going down to the super micro level where we're only talking about that child kind of in a vacuum. Like, what have they experienced? As if, you know, the people that they're immediately living with, the people who are really supposed to be and are in the best position to protect them, we're not talking about them. And that, to me, is like often what's missing from these conversations. And in fact, if you were to actually look at the questions on the survey that the doctor asks, either the child or the parent, they actually don't ask about family structure. There's a loose reference to is, has there been a change in the relationship? So even that, I think hopefully over time, we develop the confidence to actually ask questions like that because you actually want to see the data aggregated by family structure to see what are the likely structures. And as you just said, all of the prior data suggests that typically married two-parent households are the safest environment for kids. Right. Do we want to call it an adverse childhood experience when families experience divorce or when you have a father who is not around or when you have a series of boyfriends who are coming into the house? I mean, I don't know whether we're willing to go there, but frankly, those are adverse childhood experiences and they definitely have a significant effect on the ability of a child to attach to role models and to feel secure in their own home if you constantly have strangers coming in. I hope that the folks who are initiating this new program have the courage to acknowledge that. And again, the political correctness phenomenon may be that they don't want to put questions like that because somehow that might blame the victim. But my sense is hopefully we will go there to reveal lots of information that we may not want to talk about. But if you're really concerned with the welfare of children and whether or not the likelihood of having an ACE, then we got to ask questions like that. Yeah. And to the extent that we shy away from that, I think we're just we're not being honest with the kids and we're not we're not being honest with ourselves about what is producing these outcomes. And it will often lead us to say, are you are kidding, you kidding me? me? No, Come on. Seriously. Anyway, thank you so much. This has been the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? Our podcast comes out the second and fourth Wednesday of every month. And you can find it on AEI's website or wherever you get your podcasts. So thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. 